Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. The Final Four is set in basketball's playoffs, and BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered with all the odds, props, promos, and parlays for the conference finals. Use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. That's the whole point of podcasts. You can listen however and whenever you so choose. And we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. It's Memorial Day Monday, May 29th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, because you might be listening on a completely different day. And if you are, we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. Today on the show, we're going to talk about Boston Celtics Miami Heat Game 6. It was one of those five-star sporting events that we talk about all the time. It's got stakes, storylines, entertainment, action, and drama at the end. I mean, you've got all five with the conference finals mixed into everything. The 3-0 deficit, all of it was just incredible. We're going to talk about that coming up later on the show. Game 7 between the Heat and Celtics is tonight, so we're not going to do preview episodes, although if you tune into Tuesday's episode of the show, which will be Monday, May 30th, you will get our live Game 7 watch party for the Heat and the Celtics, which is how we're going to cover that game, is just by watching it live on the television while enjoying, I guess, Memorial Day? I don't know. I'm working during the game, so since I work at a radio station, I'm just going to throw on the microphones and watch the second half of Heat and Celtics with you guys, just like we watched the first half of Heat and Celtics together on Friday's episode of the show. You can check that out. It's uh, literally one episode behind this one on the Take It Easy podcast. So we'll get to NBA coming up in a second. Before we do, though, there's an A Block story I want to get to today. It's about the Arizona Cardinals and DeAndre Hopkins, and after three years of marriage that worked out wonderfully for them because the Houston Texans gave away DeAndre Hopkins for free, after three seasons, DeAndre Hopkins has been cut by the Arizona Cardinals, and because I am the co-host of the Red Rain podcast with Walter Mitchell, I feel like there's a unique expertise I have to this story and a a unique perspective I would like to bring here because back in early April, Joe Camo, our friend of the show, invited me to join his YouTube page. It's called The Cardinal Rule. You can check it out 
anywhere you get YouTube. And you can go back and find our episode. We did a mock draft Monday back on April 5th. It was the night that San Diego State was playing in the national championship game. And Joe Camo and I had a conversation about DeAndre Hopkins where earlier in the day there was news about how Hopkins could be cut if the Cardinals can't come to a deal with another team by the NFL draft. And I thought it made a lot of sense that the Cardinals and Hopkins would ultimately go go to a release, which is kind of crazy to think about when we talk about a player of a superstar caliber like DeAndre Hopkins, who had he been playing for the Cardinals, he would have been playing with almost no guaranteed money. However, DeAndre Hopkins would have been one of the highest paid players on the Arizona Cardinals. Now, granted, again, very little of the contract was guaranteed, but he was making up about $27 million against the salary cap. And DeAndre Hopkins had permission to look for a trade by the new regime of the general manager's name is Monty Austinfort. The head coach is Jonathan Gannon, who strikes me as an unserious person, but that's a conversation for another day. If you want more Jonathan Gannon talk or Monty Austinfort talk, the, the Red Rain podcast with me and Walter Mitchell is a great place to stop. But the new regime gave DeAndre Hopkins permission to seek a trade. They couldn't come to terms that matched in terms of the Cardinals eating salary cap space. And the Cardinals getting the trade pick compensation they were hoping for. Because what that situation could have been for the Cardinals is very similar to when Brock Osweiler was dumped by the Houston Texans for a second round pick to Cleveland. And Cleveland used that second round pick to draft Nick Chubb. Cleveland, in essence, paid $17 million, and this was during their ultimate tankathon seasons where they went 1 and 31 with Hugh Jackson. Cleveland, in essence, paid $17 million for a second round draft pick. And the Cardinals could have done that. They could have paid a certain amount of money guaranteed on Hopkins' contract to trade him to another team in exchange for a third or a fourth round pick or whatever it could have been. The Cardinals could have paid X amount of dollars for an extra third round pick, or they could have paid X amount of dollars for an extra fourth round pick because nobody was going to take on DeAndre Hopkins at $27 million a year. Nobody was going to extend him long-term at 31 years old. And the Cardinals were going to have to guarantee some of that money in order to facilitate a trade. And they gave Hopkins permission to seek a trade and try and find something that worked out. Didn't end up coming into fruition in April. The NFL draft passed with Hopkins still on the team. And by that point, there were conversations being had about, well, now that they couldn't find a trade by the draft, DeAndre Hopkins might report to Arizona Cardinals camp, even without a new deal. And I thought from the beginning, and we talked about this with Joe Camo on April 5th, it is more likely that they will just straight up cut DeAndre Hopkins than Hopkins coming back to play for the Cardinals because everyone involved wants this relationship to end. Hopkins wants the relationship to end without a new contract. The Cardinals want the relationship to end because of everything that's happened with the previous regime allowing Hopkins certain practice schedules that were unique to other players, the previous regime giving DeAndre Hopkins a full no-trade clause, a no-trade clause that was revoked when he got suspended for PEDs, 
DeAndre Hopkins missing the end of the 2021 season, like everything that happened with Hopkins and the Cardinals put the relationship in a bad place. And I don't know whether that's partially the blame of the Cardinals or Hopkins or Steve Keim, the dum-dum who used to run the organization, or Cliff Kingsbury. I think a lot of Cardinals fans on Twitter that I'm seeing, including Walter, are trying to piece together which parts of the blame go to which place. But the ultimate end conclusion, and I think that's important for talking about Hopkins getting cut, the ultimate end conclusion was the Cardinals didn't want him back, he didn't want to come back, and it was better for everyone that they just ended the relationship there. And so cutting Hopkins was the most plausible situation if they weren't willing to pay X amount of dollars for an extra draft pick. And this is important to note because the Arizona Cardinals have told you they just don't give a shit about this season. And part of that is Kyler Murray tearing his ACL and potentially not being back until November or sometime beyond that. The other part of it is Michael Bidwell, the owner of the Arizona Cardinals, who we know is embroiled in controversy and we know is really cheap, he has decided that he is going to cost cut at every turn he can make. Because Michael Bidwill, along with a a handful of the ownership groups in the NFL, views NFL ownership as a zero-sum game. And what I mean by that is, you have X amount of dollars, and if those dollars are going to one place, then we have to take it away from another place. Whereas Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, for example, Mark Davis poured money, in some cases that he didn't have, into the Raiders and building new facilities and getting a new stadium in Las Vegas. There was talks about Davis couldn't front the cash to buy out Josh McDaniel's contract because he had uh, taken out loans. He had taken out, he had made deals with the, the state of Nevada that he had to repay bonds over 15 to 20 years. Like Mark Davis spent money that he didn't have. And the end result is he has a new stadium, a state-of-the-art facility. The NFLPA report cards graded the Raiders third out of 32 teams in terms of how they treat their players. And the franchise valuation has gone up billions of dollars. A franchise valuation that Mark Davis can then take money out of in order either by selling part of the team or by taking out loans that will be repaid based on the valuation of the franchise. Mark Davis can take out that money Because the value of the Raiders is going up. And this is an economic principle that works across sports. But Michael Bidwell is one of these ownership groups that views this as a zero-sum game. We're not going to spend more money than we have. We are going to turn a profit every single year. Even if that's a short-sighted decision based on building a competitive football team. And it's continued to be a short-sighted decision under his ownership group. Walter has laid this out in multiple podcasts that we've done about how the last eight years of the Bidwell ownership group has run the Cardinals into the ground, and you're seeing it more transparently than ever before this year because Michael Bidwell took $37.5 million to pay Cliff Kingsbury, even though Cliff Kingsbury is not the coach of the Cardinals. That contract was fully guaranteed. Kingsbury got fired. He's going to get $37.5 million to not coach the Cardinals minus some sort of There's contract language that says he has to look for another job or there's contract language that says 
will subtract or deduct whatever amount he gets behind the new job that he goes for. And if you're keeping track for those at home, Cliff Kingsbury is the quarterback's coach at USC under Lincoln Riley, a job that does not pay seven figures, and I'm guessing a job that will allow Cliff Kingsbury to continue to collect his contract from the Cardinals as part of the terms of his buyout. I'm guessing part of it was you have to look for a new job, you have to pursue another job in coaching to guarantee your money, and so Kingsbury took a six-figure cushy job living in Los Angeles coaching quarterbacks for USC, which means coaching Caleb Williams, which is like, okay, he's not even the offensive coordinator. The head coach of the team, Lincoln Riley, I presume is the play caller. So he's taking a very cushy six-figure job in order to keep collecting his contracts from the Arizona Cardinals. And because they are paying $37.5 million to Cliff Kingsbury, and because they're paying some amount of money to Steve Keim, who they also extended last March, at the same time, Kingsbury and Keim both got matching four-year extensions in March, contracts that were mistakes at the time and have proven to be mistakes now. He is now... Michael Bidwell, the owner of the Arizona Cardinals, is losing about $50 million, and that $50 million is being saved, and I put saved in air quotes, by slashing payroll on the team and increasing ticket prices, not just for single-game tickets, for season ticket holders. The price of Cardinals tickets for this year is going to be, depending on where you sit, between 15 and 20% more expensive than it was last year. It is the mistakes of ownership are being passed on to the fans and the fans will pay more money in exchange for tickets that will then make back the money that is being paid to Steve Kime and Cliff Kingsbury. It is we are, it is as simple and transparent as we lost about $60 million on those Kingsbury and Kime contracts. So we are going to sl- cut $60 million in expenses somewhere else. And if we can't cut $60 million in expenses, we are going to increase our revenue by charging more for tickets. It is as transparent as that can be in terms of trying to save money. And look, other teams could do the same thing and other teams do the same thing. Dean Spanos left an entire city just so that he didn't have to pay rent for a stadium in San Diego or in Los Angeles. Other ownership groups do this. The difference there is that you fall behind competitively against the owners who, for example, are willing to pay $8 million for an extra third-round pick or are willing to pay $7 million against the salary cap for an extra fourth-round pick, which were options the Cardinals had on the table when they were trying to figure out the DeAndre Hopkins move. And the reason that you know this is the case, that Arizona is playing as cheap as they can, is... When they released DeAndre Hopkins, and remember, very little of his money was guaranteed. He was ma- he had a, about $50 million due to him over the next two seasons. Almost none of it was guaranteed. And DeAndre Hopkins ended up getting cut by the Arizona, or getting released by the Arizona Cardinals. And when the Cardinals had the option to designate Hopkins' release as a post- June 1st designation, which would have saved 
the Arizona Cardinals about $15 million this year and spread out his dead cap hit of $24 million across two seasons, they decided we'll save the money, take the dead cap hit this year so that we're completely off the books in 2024, which in and of itself is a fair strategy. I'm not saying that it's an awful decision to make. All it does is putting the Arizona Cardinals in a position where they just don't care about this season. And there's no problem with not caring about this season. Tanking happens all over the place in sports. It's just kind of insane when tanking happens with a team that was 8-0 two years ago and a franchise that gave their quarterback $178 million, and I have no qualms with giving their quarterback $178 million. That's a two-time Pro Bowl quarterback and a team that was on pace to win the NFC West before it all fell apart at the end of 2021 and then clearly fell apart in 2022 for a franchise that I don't even know if the fan base likes the quarterback that they have. Like a fan base that I don't even know if they liked DeAndre Hopkins being on the team in the first place. Like, the and playing for an ownership group that refuses to invest money in the team necessary to put a competitive product on the field or potentially spend money to gain a competitive advantage against their opposition. It will probably not work out for the Arizona Cardinals, one, based on reputation, but two, cost-cutting measures in the NFL and in professional sports. We're seeing something similar happen with the Oakland A's to an extreme extent in baseball. We're seeing it happen in the NBA with the Detroit Pistons or the Charlotte Hornets. Cost-cutting measures in sports for short-term financial profits will lead to your team not being competitive. And maybe this works in other businesses where there are not the same structures and systems as professional sports teams. Because what's unique about professional sports teams is you can spend the money or you can acquire the draft picks and it won't guarantee you anything in terms of product on the field. You have to have this unique competitive advantage. You have this unique competitive advantage in drafting your labor, fixing the wages of your labor, working within these confines that suppress wages, but then the different teams who all work within the same structures have different levels of wealth and different levels of investment into their product uh, on the periphery of the salary cap and on the periphery of their wage suppressed employees and they draft pl- and theoretically everyone gets the same number of draft picks to begin with because every 3 years or 3 every year they get more draft picks and and those draft picks are relatively equal everyone gets 7 draft picks to begin And then you work within the system to either acquire more draft picks, trade your draft picks, maneuver your draft picks. But everyone ultimately starts with the same number of draft picks and the same amount of financial flexibility. And time and time again, we've seen short-sighted decisions and cost-cutting measures lead to your team being bad. It usually is a symptom of a larger problem within the organization. And I think that's why it made sense for DeAndre Hopkins to get cut rather than the Cardinals paying $8 million for an extra third-round pick. The way that most notably, other teams have done this across the board, but most notably when Cleveland was tearing their team to the ground, they paid $17 million of Brock Osweiler's contract, the Texans attached a second-round pick to it, and they essentially paid $17 million for a draft pick that became Nick Chubb. 
And the Cardinals had the option to do that. Instead, they decided we're just going to outright cut one of the best players we've had on the team in the last 10 years, and we're going to outright cut him while absorbing all the money this year to make our team less competitive this year. And the short-sighted decision-making for the Cardinals is probably going to come back to bite them in the ass in the, in the short term and potentially in the long term. Now, maybe they get lucky and a draft pick falls into their lap where they're able to draft Caleb Williams or they're able to draft the next great defensive end, whatever it might be. It might work out in the end for the Cardinals. The probabilities in the process suggest that it's probably not going to work out for the Cardinals. And that's why DeAndre Hopkins has been released. And I'm not even saying this is like a judgmental thing too. Like, the Cardinals are run poorly is not a judgmental standpoint. It is the Cardinals are run poorly. DeAndre Hopkins getting cut was probably a short-sighted decision because they could have absorbed some of the money in exchange for a draft pick. I don't know the exact details behind it, but from indications that they've gotten is like if they had absorbed a certain amount of money, a team would have attached a day two or day three draft pick to acquire DeAndre Hopkins if the Cardinals were willing to eat some of the money And if they had done that, I think it would have gone differently for the Cardinals and for DeAndre Hopkins. But once we got past the draft, it seemed inevitable because you know what would have been even worse for the Cardinals than just just managing the team poorly? It would have been worse if they had brought DeAndre Hopkins back to training camp looking for a new contract because he wanted to leave, the Cardinals wanted him to leave, and for some reason they were getting close to bringing him back, and that was just a a terrible idea. So they waited until the last minute they could and then cut him with a pre-June 1st designation so that they could save the money and not get an extra draft pick or not put a competitive product on the field this season. And if you've been following the Arizona Cardinals the way that I have, it sounds quite true to character that they would make a short-sighted, financial investment to just straight up cut DeAndre Hopkins, save the $24 million that Bidwell can put in his pockets. Because again, it's dead cap money, but it's not actual dead cap. It's like not actual money. It's just punishment against the competitive product on the field. Michael Bidwell would rather put that $25 million in his pocket than to put it on the field for this year's team. And making a short-sighted decision to save money is pretty much in tune with everything we've heard about the Arizona Cardinals for the last five months. From multiple defensive coordinators, Brian Flores and Dan Quinn turning down their job because of the low pay, to uh, Ian Cunningham of the Chicago Bears turning down their general manager job, to then hiring Monty Austinford as the 31st highest paid general manager, to hiring Jonathan Gannon as the 32nd highest paid head coach, and he's does, he seems unserious as a head coach and is being paid unseriously because he could have had more money to stay with the Eagles and took the Cardinals job to be the 32nd highest paid coach in the NFL, to not spending any money in free agency, to detailed complaints about cheating, harassment, discrimination, the NFLPA report cards that talked about they're the only organization that made players pay for meals, the only or that ranked 31st out of 32 on the NFLPA report cards, and the only team that finished worse than them has multiple branches of Congress investigating them in Washington, and everything that the Cardinals 
have done over the last five months confirms that, yeah, it makes sense they would make a short-sighted financial decision to cut DeAndre Hopkins, save the $25 million, and put it against the team for next season, while the actual money itself, while it operates as a dead cap against the team, the money itself, the actual $25 million, gets to sit in Michael Bidwell's pocket. Or maybe more appropriately, gets to sit in Cliff Kingsbury's bank account over the next three years. All right, let's talk real quick about Boston Celtics versus Miami Heat game number six. If you feel like watching the Denver Nuggets throughout the playoffs is like watching an artist and their paintbrush is the basketball, Jokic has these beautiful passes and ball movement and shooting the lights out of the gym like Denver did in Game 2 against the Lakers when they went on a 15-1 run where they hit five consecutive three-pointers. And Jokic had a game where he had 34 points, 20 rebounds, 13 assists. He set historic numbers, had triple doubles by the end of the third quarter. If you feel like watching Giannis Antetokounmpo play basketball is like watching a magician work with a basketball and doing Euro steps and driving in the lane and all that stuff. If you feel like basketball is an art form or basketball has this pageantry to it, then watching game six of the Boston Celtics versus Miami Heat felt like you were stabbing each other with knives on the basketball court. I mean, it's just like stab, stab, stab. Uh, uh, every free throw, free throw, free throw, stab, stab, stab. We're going to drive into the lane, kick the ball out, dribble three times, draw a foul after 21 seconds, go to the free throw line. Just felt like you were stabbing each other over and over while playing basketball. It wasn't like it was bad basketball. Like We made jokes all throughout the first round that Tom Thibodeau got an erection every time the Knicks played a 101-96 to basketball game. This was a 101-96 basketball game between Boston and Miami, but it didn't feel as ugly as watching Cleveland brick 23-pointers. It didn't feel as ugly as watching the New York Knicks play strong defense and then throw lobs to Mitchell Robinson, and then Jalen Brunson got to uh, hit step backs from the middle of like mid-range step back shots for the New York Knicks. Like it didn't feel like that. It felt like just the most intense knife fight you could like knife fights are way more interesting. Like hitting each, like slap fighting. All of it is really interesting and intense, but also like really gory and just kind of like you want to look away at times. That's what watching Celtics and Heat felt like in Game 6. It was thoroughly entertaining, and like I said off the top, it was a five-star sporting event. It had all of the stakes. I mean, Eastern Conference Final, Game 6, Miami Heat have a chance to go to the NBA Finals. The Boston Celtics season might end, and their blueprint might be over. And then you had the the, the storylines behind it. I mean, you're talking about the third time in the last four years that the Heat and Celtics have gone to a Game 6 in the Eastern Conference Finals. We're talking about last year where Miami was a three-pointer away from beating the Celtics, and you have the eight-seed Miami Heat being up 3-0, and the Celtics were clearly a better team trying to come back from down 3-0 in order to win a series that they probably should have won in five or six games, but have now fucked around and found out that Miami 
is is exerting this basketball voodoo that is putting them out of the their rightful spot in the NBA Finals based on performance all season. And I, I mean, the storylines abound in this series. Beyond just being down 0-3, the rivalry between the Heat and the Celtics over the last four years, they are the two best teams in the Eastern Conference without question. And then you have the entertainment of Boston and Miami fighting each other with knives. Again, knife fighting is gory, but it's also entertaining as hell. Watching people fight each other with knives. I don't know if you've ever seen the closing scene of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the movie by Quentin Tarantino. It's got Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. It isn't like a mini spoiler alert, but like knife fights are really entertaining. (laughs) Knife fights are really, really entertaining to watch. And so you've got this knife fight going on. Stakes, storylines, entertainment, action. I mean, that whole game was within three points. And then it was Celtics by 10. And then Miami started exerting this basketball voodoo where they got to the free throw line four straight times and hit four free throws. And then Duncan Robinson hit a three-pointer. And somehow it was a one-point game again. And then Jalen Brown got a four-point play because Bam Adebayo yanked on the rim and got a technical foul. And Jalen Brown got a a goaltending bucket and then a technical free throw. And then the and-one free throw. And it was a four-point play and... It looked like Boston was going to pull away up seven. And then Miami, down seven points with two and a half minutes to play, gets a three-pointer from Jimmy Butler. And then Jimmy Butler gets to the free throw line for an and one. And then it's a one-point game. And then Marcus Smart gets fouled, but he only hits one out of the two free throws because Marcus Smart, off the Duncan Robinson missed three-pointer, he didn't get the ball into the front court the way he was supposed to and pass it to a better free throw shooter. So Marcus Smart dribbles and draws the foul and only hits one of the two free throws. And then Jimmy draws the three-point foul. I mean, the drama was intense. And or, or the action was intense. And then you got the drama at the end with everything that we were just describing. It was a five-star sporting event. No question a five-star sporting event. And there were some interesting like stats to take away from this game. Jason Tatum made one shot in the second half and still and he was only a plus three for the Celtics which granted when it was a one-point victory that plus three of on the court kind of made a difference but Jason Tatum was 0 for 8 from the three-point line Jason Tatum made one shot in the second half of that basketball game and in true fighting with knives fashion Jason Tatum went 15 for 15 at the free throw line and I don't want to compare it to when Giannis in the in Game 6 of the Finals went 18 for 19 at the free throw line and had that 50-point game to close out the Suns. Because if Jason Tatum had hit like an average amount of his shots, he would have had 40-plus points in the game. Jason Tatum played awful and saved the Boston Celtics because he went 15 for 15 at the free throw line. And on Friday's episode of the show, I talked about how There's only two games I can remember where Jason Tatum was the difference in the Celtics winning or losing over the last two playoff runs. It was game six against the Bucs in 2022, and it was game six against the 76ers in this last playoff series when he hit the 16 points in the fourth quarter with them down by six facing elimination. It's the only time I can think of Jason Tatum 
being the difference between winning and losing for the Celtics. And while you could venture to say that any one of those moments in Game 6 could have been the difference between winning and losing for the Celtics, Jason Tatum hitting 15 of 15 free throws changes the entire game for the Boston Celtics. So even though Jason Tatum had no made shots from the field in the third quarter, one for the entire second half, he did finish 15 of 15 at the free throw line. And I'm going to give him props for that part of it. Even if everything else wasn't going his way, he was still able to get to the free throw line and go 15 of 15 to get the Celtics squeak right past the Miami Heat. Thought that was interesting. Thought that uh, Caleb Martin being the best player on the Heat for 40 minutes of the game was kind of wild. Like all the undrafted players had double digit points in the game while Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo started 5 of 28 from the field. Like, combined between the two of them, Jimmy was 2 for 15, Bam Adebayo was 2 for 13, and the four undrafted guys, Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, and Caleb Martin, all had double-digit scoring. Caleb Martin had 21 points and 10 rebounds with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Caleb Martin was the best player on the Miami Heat for... 40 minutes of a closeout game six. Kind of crazy to think about. Caleb Martin, by the way, isn't the one who's going to leave. Max Struess is a free agent. Gabe Vincent is a free agent at the end of the year. Caleb Martin's going to be with the Miami Heat next season. Caleb Martin might be with the Miami Heat the season after that. And he was the best player on the floor in a closeout game six for Miami, which is the reason why I was instinctively ready to be like, oh, the Nuggets would sweep Miami out of the playoffs. But Miami keeps practicing this basketball voodoo. And all of a sudden, Jimmy Butler's getting to the free throw line and they're down seven, but now they're winning. And Caleb Martin is scoring 21 and 10, but then totally disappears in the fourth quarter. Eric Spolster, the coach of the Heat, left him off the floor for six minutes of the fourth quarter, despite the fact he was the best player for Miami, maybe the best player on the floor, period, for 40 minutes of that basketball game. It's kind of wild to watch that basketball voodoo happen. The Al Horford block on a Bam Adebayo dunk, I immediately thought back to, I'm sure a lot of people did, but I immediately thought back to the Boston Celtics Jason Tatum dunk in the bubble that got blocked by Bam Adebayo with basically two fingers on Jason Tatum. I remember getting blo- Tatum getting blocked there and then Al Horford delivering the block to Adebayo that at the time felt like was going to win the game. And again, in a one-point victory where the game winner was a buzzer beater put back with 0.2 seconds, there's really any moment you could point to that's the difference in the game. But Al Horford straight rejecting Bam Adebayo on a block was a pretty big moment in that game. There were a couple of foul calls like the Jalen Brown push by Duncan Robinson. Whether you want to debate a push or not, that was an interesting point of that game. But that there were a couple unheralded moments of the game or like underrated moments. And I think above any else was the Al Horford block on Bam Adebayo with I think it was like 230 to go in the game or 240 to go in the game. Uh, that That block was awesome by Al Horford. And uh, last but not least, I wrote this down, and I wanted to bring it up real quick here uh, before we leave you adieu for Game 7. We talked about how it felt like a knife fight, and I think this stat kind of sums up the knife fight best, which is 
13 of the last 22 points of the game. And this is going back to, I believe, four minutes and 30 seconds left in the basketball game. It was at the time Miami had one, uh, Miami had 88 and the Celtics had 97, I want to say. I want to say maybe 96. I think it was 96 to 88 with about five minutes, four and a half minutes left to go in the game. From 96 to 88 until the end of the game, 13 of the 22 points were scored on free throws. And remember, the last bucket of the game was a Derek White putback for two. So before the Derek White putback, you had Jimmy Butler and Gabe Vincent and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, I think maybe Jason Tatum in there too, hitting 65% of the points in clutch time, which is the last five minutes of the game, in clutch time, 65% of the points came at the free throw line. That is knife fight shit. In the last five minutes of a game, it is free throws, free throws, free throws, free throws. Missed a couple big three-pointers, miss a layup here and there, but we're just going to get to the free throw line, draw fouls, and just keep stabbing each other with knives as we try and go free throw, free throw, free throw, back and forth. Oh, Miami's hitting more free throws than Boston. Oh, Miami's getting fouled more than Boston because Jimmy Butler is incredibly adept at getting to the free throw line, and Bama Bio is being physical inside and drawing contact from Horford or Grant Williams. Yeah, Jalen Brown got fouled, but we don't really think Duncan pushed off. Like, it's just knife fight, knife fight, knife fight, knife fight, all the way to the end. 65% of your points in clutch time are scored at the free throw line. Again, 13 out of 20 of the final points in the final five minutes scored at the free throw line prior to Derek White's tip-in to win game six and complete an all-time classic NBA playoff game and a five-star sporting event in our books. And I think the first five-star sporting event we've had since, I want to say, the World Baseball Classic... It's either the World Baseball Classic or the UCLA-Gonzaga Sweet 16 game. I think those are the last two five-star sporting events that we've had in the time since. I don't even think we've had a five-star sporting event in this year's playoffs. I mean, Jason Tatum beating the 76ers was probably the most in Game 7 and scoring, was it 67 points in five quarters, was probably the most intense moment of the playoffs so far. I don't think we've had a true five-star sporting event this year in the playoffs since that game. Maybe it was the Sacramento Kings-Golden State Warriors game four. Maybe that that whole series was a five-star sporting event, but maybe I was just too connected to it as the radio producer for the Sacramento Kings. But the last five-star sporting event I can remember intently is World Baseball Classic Championship game with Mike Trout, Shohei Otani being the last out, and Gonzaga versus UCLA Sweet 16 in March Madness. Those are the last two five-star sporting events that I can distinctly remember, along with Sacramento Kings, Golden State Warriors being as close to a five-star playoff series as we could find. So, yeah, it was incredible. Excited for Game 7. Stay tuned to tomorrow for our Game 7 breakdown of Heat 
versus Celtics. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, and the occasional Wired Up on Sundays. Make sure to leave a five-star review, leave some downloads. Any and all support is greatly, greatly appreciated. Make sure to check out our book as well. If you're someone who's interested in the story of the San Antonio Spurs, you can check out our new book. It is out wherever you get books. There's links in the description to this episode for all of our work. Thanks for stopping in, everybody. We will talk to you again tomorrow. And in the meantime, take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.